The Man with the Gift from The Golden Bark and the Weaver's Grave by Seamus O'Kelly. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Man with the Gift For twenty-five years the boss had gone up and down the worn cabin steps without a worry. His fists had grown accustomed to the feel of ropes, to the rolling up and down of barrels and the swinging of boxes at the loading and discharging of the golden bark. The motion of his limbs had come to be part of the ritual of the deck. He exhaled an odour of tar. His feet had flattened, his hands had rounded, his neck had developed a curve, throwing his face forward. His eyes were palely yellow, like the water of the canal. His vision had become concentrated, drilling through the landscape like canals. His temperament was placid. His emotions rose and fell as mechanically as if they were regulated by invisible locks. He was as tame as a duck. His name was Martin Coughlin, and he was known by stray words that followed his speech like a memory to have come from the north. That torch of democracy, organisation, one day reached the backwash of existence. It found by its strange devices of all people Martin Coughlin. Up to that he had no sense of responsibility for the wrongs of the world, no brooding of the spirit in the problems of his day. His interests began at one harbour and ended at another. The things that he saw from the deck made up his world. They were good and he was satisfied. But then they came to him and told him he had been elected on the committee. He beamed at the announcement, for he grasped, though vaguely, that he was a man chosen, one to whom honour was paying her respects. He walked into the shed where they held the committee meetings with his slow lurch, his mind a blank as to the purpose of the assembly. He made no inquiries. He sat down with the others and looked round him. A man at a table read something out of a book. Martin Coughlin laughed and felt the other staring at him. A deep voice with a note of admonition, if not tragedy, called out, Order! Martin Coughlin poked the ribs of a neighbour to show that he appreciated the humour of the situation. Then a man rose at the head of the table. He was a spare man with drooping mustachios, a penetrating eye, a voice that sounded high and sharp in the shed. Martin Coughlin stared at the speaker. Something rare and unsuspected had touched his life. He wondered where this spare man had got all the words. They came out in a steady flow. He was obviously aiming at something, but what it was Martin Coughlin did not know, and indeed did not care. It was sufficient for him that the words came on and on. He had never heard any mortal before keeping up such a sustained flood of speech. Martin Coughlin leaned back, delight on his face. Another man rose. He spoke even better. He gesticulated with energy. The others began to slap their limbs with their hands. Martin Coughlin slapped his limbs, feeling he was privileged. He had begun to live. A thick-set man followed. His voice wakened echoes all over the place. His eyes flashed around, seeking one face now, another again. Suddenly, 
the eyes fell on Martin Coughlin. The man addressed him as if he were appealing to an intelligence. He argued with him, made gestures at him, deposited all his logic at his feet. Martin Coughlin's blood began to heat. He felt a tingle at the curve on the back of his neck. He coughed to relieve the tension. Then the speaker's gaze wandered to somebody else. The talk went on for some hours. Men grew excited. Several spoke at the same time for pregnant minutes. Martin Coughlin began to perspire. Once he shouted, Hear, hear! because the words had become to sound familiar. When the committee meeting broke up, he went back to the boat, his cheeks flaming, feeling that he had done it all himself. He passed Hike on the way. The little driver looked up at him with respect. The dark-faced man was sitting on a box by the stern. The meeting over? he asked. Yes, Martin Coughlin said. His voice sounded hoarse. His throat felt dry. He went on to the keg and drank a mug of water. Afterwards, Martin Coughlin paced the deck with a new air. He became preoccupied. Once they saw him gesticulating at a bush on the bank. He took a new tone to the lock keepers. He was always clearing his throat. A few times at the meals they thought he was about to make a speech, but something always overcame him. When they sounded him as to the committee proceedings, his face beamed. There was speech-making, he would say. What did they say? Martin Coughlin rose. He caught the lapel of his coat, struck an attitude. An inspired look came into his face, but no words followed. Instead, he took up a bucket and went on deck. He's a great man for the committee, they said. He won't give the show away. Aye, man, but that fellow is knowing. He could hold a cabinet secret. One day the dark-faced man loaned a paper at a village. They don't give the speeches, he said, but there's the name right enough. Martin Coughlin. Martin Coughlin took the paper. His eyes swam as he spelled out his name. He pored over the sheet for long spells throughout the rest of the evening. When the men were turning in, he said, Boys, but she's a brave wee paper. He got a candle and sat over it, spelling everything out, including the advertisements. Then he sat up, delight on his face, the look in his eyes of a man who knew he had achieved something. Men, he said, I've overhauled her, beam and aft, stem to stern. But the only answer was a chorus of heavy snores. He turned in with a grumble. There was another committee meeting soon after. The speeches fell on his head like dew from the heavens. Language! Why, the world had never yet heard the like. Moreover, he became conscious that the other men were deferring to him in their views. He sat there as solemn as a judge, the greatest listener who had ever arrived in the shed. The speakers felt that they had at last got hold of an audience, a man of appreciation. Now and then he nodded his head in approval. It was worth the yard of debate. When he shook his head in disapproval, it excited the speakers. They went on and on, fighting, arguing, playing for his opinion. But Martin Coughlin held to his silent views with wonderful pugnacity. He was not to be cajoled. What were they at last night, Martin? One of the men asked afterwards. That, 
said Martin after a pause, is a secret. He's too close-minded, they said. He keeps it all in for the committee. It must be something to hear him when the cork is off. The dark-faced man was fond of the paper. He got it regularly in the village. Here we are, he said with satisfaction. They give us the speeches this time. Now we know what Martin Coughlin had to say for himself. But there was no speech from Martin Coughlin. Everybody had said something except the representative from the Golden Bark. The dark-faced man made a complaint. Don't mind the paper, Martin Coughlin said. She's no good. I knew from the first she had sprung a leak. But he felt that the men were dissatisfied. He struck an attitude on the deck and said, Mr. Chairman and gentlemen, I venture to think. He paused. To my mind, he added. There was another pause. I say, standing here tonight. He looked vaguely over the landscape. I, I beg to propose. But then he took a little run up and down the deck, rubbing his hands with delight. He's too clever, one of the men said. He thinks to put us off by play-acting. It won't do. Before the proceedings of the next committee meeting began, Martin Coughlin took the secretary aside. The secretary was a shrewd person. There was a motion on the agenda to give him a salary. John, said Martin Coughlin with familiarity, I want you to tell me how it has done. How is what done? The speeches, you know, the language, the words, the talk they do have. John was puzzled. Then a light broke upon him. Well, he said, a man must have it in him. Have what in him? John hesitated, thought and said, The gift. Martin Coughlin was crestfallen. He felt there was something in life he had let slip. Where would there be likelihood of getting the gift? He asked at last. I don't know, the other replied. It comes from within. Oh, I see, Martin Coughlin said more cheerfully. Then he confided, John, I have it. I, within, in the inside of me. Language, great language, but I can't get it out. Have courage, the other said. Take your chance. Get up on your legs. Face them. When you do that, the words will flow out of you. Do you think they will, John? Sure. John was a man persuasive, one who carried conviction, inspired hope and drew salaries. Then there is that wee paper, John. If I'd come out with them words, they would be there, of course. They'd be reading her, looking out for what a man might say. Oh, that's it, is it, Martin? John asked, then patted the other on the back. That will be all right, old man. Leave that to me. Vote straight on the salary question, and the goods will be delivered to you on the paper. Thanks, John. I will. At a critical moment in the debate, Martin Coughlin rose. He went over to the table, wrapped his knuckles upon it to command attention, jerked the collar of his coat about his neck. He struck the attitude he had rehearsed abroad. It was reminiscent of various statues erected to the memory of great orators. He looked up and down the shed. A hush fell upon the assembly. Men leaned back to hear what the silent man, the audience, the one man of reticence among them had to say at this crisis. Mr. Chairman and Mr. Gentleman, Martin Coughlin began, blundering through nervousness. 
There was a laugh. Martin Coughlin moistened his lips with his tongue, for they were dry and inclined to stick. One of his knees struck against the other. Then he had to clear a lump from his throat. John, our secretary, he said at last, told me that if I stood up on me legs, the words would flow out of me, from within the inside of me. He hesitated, looking about him, in a panic, a queer feeling of collapse in his brain. He smiled a ghastly smile. Go on, said the chairman. He, he said, Martin Cochran resumed, his voice falling to an echo, that if I faced you, they would flow out of me. But by heavens, they won't. He sat down. There was a burst of laughter and applause. The men stared at Martin Cochran. There was that mixture of scepticism, enjoyment, malicious delight in their glances that fasten upon all fallen gods. They were taking their fun out of an exposure, the showing up of an emptiness that wore a mask, the betrayal of that discretion which is only a dullness. Martin Cochran was too heated, too full of confusion to notice their crude levity. By the time he had recovered himself, they had dropped him. They no longer deferred to him. He was no longer appealed to as an intelligence. He drew back instinctively to the shadows and he sat there until the meeting broke up. When he reached his boat, the men greeted him with deference. He muttered something and went down to the cabin. He stayed there for the rest of the night. The committee, he said to the dark-faced man next day, is a rotten committee. I thought that all along, the other replied, but I didn't like to say it, seeing you were a great one on it. And an ignorant committee, Martin Coughlin added. It is that. By the end of the week, the paper was out. The dark-faced man, after reading it, looked at Martin Coughlin and then went up to him. Look here, boss, he said, putting out his hand. Shake hands. They shook hands, Martin Coughlin nervously. It was a great speech, the dark-faced man said. You're wasting your time on this boat. Martin Coughlin blushed. His gaze was uncertain. The other left him the paper. He sat on a barrel and opened the sheet. There was his name in print again. He spelled it out slowly. Mr. Martin Coughlin, who was received with loud applause, said, and there followed over a column of type, of words, of language, of a speech. He read it over with a thumping heart. It was dotted with hear, hear, applause and cheers. When he finished, he stood up and walked the deck, his thick limbs outspread, his flat feet solid on the planks, his chest out. Is it a good report, boss? they asked. It is very fair, very fair, men, he said with toleration. Man, but I'd like to hear it coming out. No doubt you would. We'll hear you sometime. You will. Why not? To be sure. He ran his fingers through his hair. He drilled spaces, vague spaces through the familiar landscape with his gaze. His blood rose gradually, eventually flooding his face until it grew purple in colour, rising as steadily as if someone had lifted the sluice of a floodgate. God, the language of it! He repeated to himself over and over again throughout the day. For the first time in his life, he refused to go into the haven when they made the journey across the bog. Instead, he went into the cabin and alone spelt the speech over and over again. 
Gradually, his mind got over the habit of thinking of it as something apart, something outside his own life. He no longer said, God, the language of it. Instead, he muttered, Great language, splendid talk, just the thing. That's it. That's what I'd say. That's the very word I'd say. I declare I think it was the word I said. It was going through my head at the time. I must have said that word. If I did not, I intended it. But I forget what I said. Maybe I said it. To be sure I said it. Of course I said it. Why not? The very word. No, but the very words. If I said one word, I must have said another. I could not help following up one word with another. What was to stop me? Nothing. I went on that very way. One word borrowed another. What else could it do? To be sure I said it. In fact, it's all what I said, word for word. He went on persuading himself until the others came back from the haven. He went up to the dark-faced man. I tell you what it is. It's a very fine report. A very good report. A tip-top report. Word for word there it is, in black and in white. He struck one fist in the other. Boss, the other said, something almost approaching reverence in his long, narrow face. You're a great one, a gifted one, for to turn around and say the like of what you said, a man must have the gift. To be sure he must, Martin Coughlin agreed, taking some steps along by the cargo covered with great oilcloths. I told John, the secretary, I had it within in the inside of me, and what had I within in the inside of me, I ask you men, the gift. Thank God we'll all hear you soon, the dark-faced man said. There's a public meeting coming up. Martin Coughlin drew a long breath. You don't tell me so. I do. We had word of it in the haven. There's to be speech-making and great speech-making. We'll expect you that day to show the great gift that's in you. You will, to be sure, Martin Coughlin said. But without enthusiasm, he ran his fingers through his hair. Then he walked away from the others, standing at the prow of the boat, his sturdy figure solid against the water. A great one he is for the gab, the grotesque-looking man said irreverently. Look at the two powerful limbs he has holding him up from the ground. After that, Martin Coughlin grew very subdued, silent, avoiding the topic of the coming meeting. The men said he was bottling himself up for the big occasion. They noted that he still pored over the paper that contained his speech. He would lie back in his bunk at night, a candle fixed by his side, drilling through the speech. Once or twice the men heard him muttering to himself like a boy grappling with a lesson. In these days it was noted that some of the cholera left his face. A certain pensiveness crept into his expression. Boss, one of the men asked him. Are you in pain? I am, Martin Coughlin answered and walked sadly away. Once the men wakened to hear him pacing the deck in the middle of the night. The dark-faced man went up the ladder and popped his vignette over the hold. He came back after a time. He's on deck in his shirt, he said. The moon is shining on him. His legs are like two white pillars under the tiller. He has that paper with him. I heard him giving out a few words. He was losing them trying to catch them up again, stumbling and staggering over them like a man that would be raving. Then he would run his hands through his hair and the wind blowing the shirt about the white pillars. 
Me the powers, said the grotesque man, turning over in his bunk. It's a chilly sort of a night, and I'm glad I have not the gift. As the day of the meeting approached, and it became more and more a topic of conversation, Martin Coughlin's depression increased. Something seemed to weigh him down. He took the dark-faced man aside. You know this meeting is got up by the committee, he said. And you call to mind that I told you that that committee a long while ago. I said it was a rotten committee. You did. I remember that. And I said it was an ignorant committee. You did. Right enough. You agreed with me. We were at one as regards this committee. Very well. I'm not going to give that committee the satisfaction of making a speech for them. Now that would be a pity. And you haven't the gift. There you are. That's what makes me do it. How can a man of gift speak for a rotten, ignorant committee? To the dark-faced man, this was a poser. Perhaps in that moment of expediency, of pressure, Martin Coughlin showed that he had, after all, some talent for politics. He walked down the deck with a stride. Never! he exclaimed with decision, waving his arms. The meeting came off without Martin Coughlin. He did not even attend. He sent word to strike his name off the committee. We will indeed, one of the men said. Little good any such tame ducks is to anyone. The men from the Golden Bark were disappointed that Martin Coughlin did not pour forth his eloquence at the assembly. They somehow regarded him as in some way wronged, but he became more cheerful himself. He began to whistle again as he moved round the boat. His flat feet became more than ever a part of the ritual of the deck. The curve at the back of his neck threw out his head another degree. His eyes became more palely yellow. They were digging imaginary canals in the landscape. He was as happy as a duck in the water. Once the dark-faced man asked, Boss, what became of the paper with your speech in it? Oh, yon rag, Martin Coughlin made answer. I rolled her up in a stone and she's at the bottom of ween of weeks. The End Man with the Gift by Seamus O'Kelly Read by Mary Cunningham.